0: You're listening to Startups for Good, where we explore high-growth and high-values ventures. I am your host, Miles Lasseter, three-time founder turned investor. Join us to hear stories of entrepreneurs. Join us to be inspired to be a founder or to work for a startup. Join us to be part of a community that believes startups can be a force for good. Welcome to Startups for Good. On today's episode, I have Nadim Hassani. He's the CEO and co-founder of EarnUp, which is a FinTech platform. He's also a computer engineer turned lawyer, consultant, private equity investor. EarnUp recently announced a Series B $25 million raise led by Bain Capital Ventures with participation from SignalFire, Blumberg Capital, and Flourish Ventures, and yours truly, from Purpose Built Ventures. We'll talk about all this more in the show. EarnUp is a FinTech platform that helps companies with risk mitigation and cost reduction, ensuring the customers have access to the best credit products. What does that mean? He'll explain in a little more detail, but basically it helps individual borrowers manage the repayment of their loans in a way that's easier and more intuitive. The outflows are matched with the timing of the inflows. If people are getting paid weekly, why not pay your mortgage weekly? And there's more to it than that. He also serves as an advisor to OpenSense, a company that's re-engineering the DNA of corporate email. We didn't talk about that much. He enjoys making things that work beautifully, He started coding when he was nine years old, when he built his first bulletin void system off a 2400 baud modem. Wow, that's going back. He's a son of immigrants who arrived in the U.S. with virtually nothing. His upbringing instilled in him a passion for helping people build financial resilience. And he talks about, in the episode, a motivation of founding EarnUp was when both founders saw financial worries take a toll on their parents, scraping and saving and sometimes missing payments and struggling to get by. In the show, we talk about EarnUp's growth and customer focus, how having a range of investor types works in a double bottom line business, the benefits of having a co-founder and how to pick one. We talk about mental illness and startup land and the challenges of that. We talk about their success building a diverse engineering team and much more. I think you'll enjoy it, so please stay tuned. Nadim, welcome to Startups for Good. So much, uh, so much good stuff to talk about. I'm excited to have you on. I'm excited too, Miles. Thanks so much for having me on. Yeah, so I'd like to start out with a tough question. Banks, are they a necessary evil or are they doing the good stuff?
1: i love the question it's I and mean, it's a good way to start off the conversation i actually maybe you'll consider this a non-answer but i actually think they're both and the reason why that is is because so many Americans are banking with banks today that the financial system can't operate without them and majority of Americans are still banking with the traditional banks and so you can't make change without them i like to think of like what i've learned over the years in running running earn up is people generally show up to work and in their lives with good intentions. People are generally good people. I say generally because that's not true for, for everybody, but it is for a, a large majority of people. And I, I think while some banks are not good at what they do for all the reasons that you you might read in, in the press, I, I think that many of them show up with intentions of doing right by their customers. It's just really hard to do sometimes. Uh, because of the way the industry is structured or the history of the banks. For example, there are some banks out there that have acquired 10, 15, 20 other banks over the history of of their organizations over, let's call it, the past 20 to 30 years. And in some instances, not all instances, in some instances, that benefits the consumer because that allows them to deliver lower prices, I say in, in many instances, but when you do that as a bank, what ends up happening is you take 20 or 30 different information technology systems and you have to integrate them over time. And many banks are still running on multiple systems. So it's hard its hard for them to do all the things that, that um, they would want to do on older technology systems. And I think that that's where an advantage that that fintech has. And uh, that, that's why I think a lot of the fintechs you read about In the space have have been so successful in doing what they're doing.
0: So EarnUp helps tons of people manage their debt and essentially, in part, acts as a better front end to all of these disparate backend systems that banks are running, right?
1: Yeah, but before we get to the question, Miles, what do you think? You you think necessary evil?
0: Um, I think that... Many banks are hamstrung in terms of their ability to innovate by our regulatory framework, uh, which you know, goes as deep as pressure on what types of people to hire at banks and a view from regulators that innovation shouldn't come from banks. So I think it really makes it difficult for banks to meet the ever-evolving expectations of consumers. So yeah. where I would come down on is some banks can be very frustrating to deal with, but I guess I'm mostly in your camp of it's not all their fault.
1: Yeah, I, I th- yeah, I think that's right. I think the regulatory points are, is a really good one to point out. And a lot of the fintechs, you know a lot of the fintechs have to deal with that as well, which is, is a huge. I think I once heard the anecdote that the average gestation period, so to speak, of um, like a social media startup or some other consumer startup, without regulatory overhead is about six months. And the average gestation period for a FinTech because of the regulatory overhead is about two years. So it, it, it has been, I know in the history of our business, it has been a, a, a large burden, particularly in the early days when you don't have the resources to overcome them, uh, has been a large obstacle to overcome. So it's an interesting take as well. And I think that's right
0: too. So why did you put yourself through that pain? <laughs> yeah.
1: Well, maybe I say half jokingly, knowing what I know now, maybe I wouldn't have. <laughs> no, I, I think we would have look, there's a there's a founding story here, which is I you know, which relates back to my parents, which I'm happy to get into. I think we're helping people and I think we're making change and, and I think we're making positive change in in the industry, particularly in the mortgage industry. It's good to know that that the efforts are, are paying off. Let me give you just a very quick small example, which is, you know, we've been building the business over the past six or seven years. And one of our investors is Acumen Fund, They're their nonprofit. And around June or July or so of this year, as a lot of customers were reporting forbearances on their mortgages, uh, w- which essentially means they couldn't make payments to their mortgages, Acumen Fund uh, came to us and said, hey, we have $150,000 that's available to help uh, mortgage owners that are uh, in distress type situations, can you distribute this money to people who need it? And, and I think that's a that's one of those proud moments for me where we, we spend that we spent all the years building a business that has a trusted relationship, a trusted conduit with the customer such that one of our investors and this nonprofit at the same time is comfortable enough and confident enough in our ability to do the work but also, our relationship with the customer. I mean, it's easy to distribute $150,000 and have it go to fraudsters or, or get stuck in a system or get stolen. And here we have this trusted relationship with a customer where we can identify the customers who are in most need and then deliver those, those funds to them. So you say like, well, well, why go through that? I mean, that's just a, a small example of one of the mission driven things that we do that 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 makes me proud of all the work that that we put into the business and proud of all the work that the team has done over the years.
0: Well, it's wonderful that you're able to give that money and help people. But as I understand you're helping people every day, avoid getting that far gone on their mortgage payments by making the whole system easier for people. Yeah,
1: that's right. Um, good, good introduction to the product. And so think we've got two products and I'll spend, and they build on top of each other. And I'll probably spend more time on the first one. Here, although the this, this second, what we call a data data product or Get Ahead dashboard one is the newest and, and, and very interesting product as well. The first product to talk about is our Get Ahead Autopay product. And the Get Ahead Autopay product is, uh, think of it as a pay when you get paid product. So 70%, 60 to 70% of Americans live paycheck to paycheck. And about, I want to say 10% of Americans get paid monthly and the other 90% get paid either weekly, every other week, or twice a month. And so if you're living paycheck to paycheck, being able to budget over the course of the month, over that weekly or every two-week paycheck cycle, to pull the money out and set it aside so that you can make your payment, your once-monthly payment, your largest financial obligation, which is paying your mortgage, um, is is a pretty hard thing to do. And what we've done is we've created a product that, Removes the money from your bank account the day that you get paid, and then sends the money to the mortgage holder, the mortgage servicer, typically in this case, so that you can make the payment on time. And what we've what we found is by doing that is we're able to reduce delinquencies by 20 to 30 percent. So on the one hand, that's pretty surprising, but on the other hand, it's not really that surprising because people live paycheck to paycheck, and if you're taking the money that the, the day the money is actually there. Then, then they actually make the, the payment more reliably. A Part of the concept of the product is actually based in a little bit of what the IRS does, which is like when you owe the IRS money, what they do is they, they garnish your wages. They go directly into the payroll system and take money directly from you. This is the same concept. They've been doing it for you know half a century, I think, where they're taking money directly from the paycheck. Uh, of course, we're not as forceful as they are, and um, but and we do it in a much kinder way. But but the point is the same, which is when it's available, you get to make it. Now, this is useful to the customer for all the reasons that I've said, which is they get to make the payment on time. It's also useful for the mortgage servicer or the enterprise where our business is a to c business. So we actually sell our product to the enterprise and then they subsequently offer it to the customer. And the reason why it's good for the enterprise or, or the mortgage servicer is because they get those reduced delinquencies too. And the cost of managing a delinquent loan since the 2008 financial crisis has gone up by over 500% since then. And that's primarily due to your point, Miles, about additional regulation ever since Dodd-Frank Act passed. And so they stand to save a lot of money by preventing consumers from going delinquent. And this is a little bit of what I was talking about about at the beginning of the session, which is people generally show up with good intentions. And a lot of people think that, oh, wow, like, you know, these enterprises or these servicers, they want people to go delinquent. There there is a subgroup where that is true, but the majority of them, the vast majority of them actually prefer that uh, the customer doesn't go delinquent because it's a lot of work for them to sort through that. And it creates a lot of regulatory obligations for them. So the other side, the other part of that get ahead auto pay product is we offer it just a much better, experience where you can actually go online and start, stop, pause your payment any given moment of time. Whereas that's really hard to do with a typical mortgage servicer, where let's say you've set up on autopay, even to get set up, you've got to send in like a voided check, or you got to send in the letter. I don't know the last time I've sent a piece of mail with a stamp on it, but in many instances, you have to do that. And even in the instances when you don't, when you have to pause it, because for many Americans, again, living paycheck to paycheck, sometimes the paycheck doesn't come in on time or you got paid less this particular week. In our system, you can just go on and hit a button and it'll pause the deductions until you hit play again or until you hit start again. And if that's a day later or four days later, it just picks it up again. It starts making the deductions again so that you can still make the payment on time without having to go through the entire administrative rigmarole. And just simply, again, offering simple features here, which are really hard for traditional servicers and banks to offer because of their you know, again, because of the structure of the industry, the technology systems, the regulatory situation, which is something because we're a new entrant is relatively straightforward and easy for us to do. I'd be remiss not to mention the Get Ahead dashboard product, which is a terrific product, which allows the enterprise to get insight into the the health of the consumer, that is the financial health of the customer, and offer them options, uh, both in situations where they're approaching delinquency. So uh, early warning to the customer to let them know that they're likely to miss the next payment, as well as uh, exposing options to the customer in the event a uh, financially advantaged opportunity to refi your loan is available or something like that. So that's that's a separate conversation. We can go deeper into the mortgage ecosystem to explain that.
0: But I is- don't know if you think about it this way, but I, okay. I think of you as applying behavioral finance insights, making it easier for Customers to have their their will, their intention executed without having to do all of the math and having to follow through, you know, precisely every single time or do administrative work. I,
1: I think that's right. Um, we in the early days of the business, I want to say around 2016. So it's been a, it's been a bit, <laughs> but we continue to work with them. Worked with the folks over at Common Sense Lab and Irrational Labs, and so that's Chris um, and Berman and Daniel Ariely in the beginning the days to develop some of these concepts, which is. You know the pay when you get paid. If you break payments into smaller uh, into smaller payments, they become much more palatable. Um, so, you know, just doing a couple, you know, doing ten bucks a day or something like that, it feels a lot better than, you know, doing three hundred dollars. If I did my math correctly at the at the end of the month. So there's a lot of behavioral science that that goes in goes into it. That's actually where the name EarnUp comes from, which with with them back in. I think it was in 2016 with Common Sense Lab. And there's a paper out there um, or an article that, that we jointly published about how customers respond to the word earn uh, about 70% better than they do to the word save. It was one of the key pieces of our product as well as accelerating the loan. So you get out of debt faster. I, I missed that part and talking about the product. And so, you know, the average customer on our platform is saving something like five years off their mortgage loan. So instead of paying off their loan in in 30 years, they're paying it off generally around 25 years or so using our technology. And what we did is is we did a bunch of testing and discovered that people respond 70% more favorably to the word earn than they do save. And what we hypothesized was that people are just kind of sick and tired of saving. What they really want is is an opportunity to increase their station in life or, or get paid more. And the word earn really talks to that and that based off of that we we named the company EarnUp. And so that is just a like an example of some of the behavioral science that we used in in developing the product and the brand.
0: And what sort of size are you now? How many customers do you serve, employees, et cetera?
1: Yeah, we've got 10 billion dollars of loans on the platform, we have about 80, 80 team members, but you know, quite quite large from where we started from my perspective, from the the kitchen table of uh of my house with Matthew my co founder
0: yeah t- tell me that story well the founding story is a bit of a,
1: a you know is an interesting one it dates back to my parents my, my parents are immigrants um, they bought their first home in 1986 on a 30 year mortgage if you do 1986 plus thirty that's two thousand sixteen so as of 2016 they should own their home and so if I go back to my parents today and I say, hey mom dad congrats you you know you fled a war-torn region in the world and came to the United States and live the American dream. Uh, my dad actually gets emotional about it sometimes and he actually you know, he says, we've definitely lived the American dream. This, this country is the most amazing thing, the most amazing country in the world, uh, but we don't own our own home. Uh, and, and so it's like, well, what? Well, when will you own the home? And it's not for another 20 years. So so the question for all of us should be, well, what turned a 30-year mortgage into a 55-year mortgage? And what the, the answer, that is, many things went wrong, and those many things that went wrong happens to ninety percent of Americans. One of the mistakes they made was not making extra principal payments, and, and to try to reduce the term of the loan. And so, when I bought my first house in two thousand and ten, I started making some extra principal payments on my loan, and I didn't look carefully enough at the statements. And when I opened up uh, the the first statement, I think it was like six months later, because I had it on auto pay, and I looked at the statement, the the bank had taken the extra money that I was trying to contribute to principal, I think it was around $600 or so over the course of that time, to additional principal, and they had posted it to future interest payments. And so for those that aren't that familiar with the way these mortgages work is here I was trying to take this from like a 30-year loan to like a 25-year loan by making extra principal payments. And what they were simply doing is saying, well, you're trying to pay the interest in year 30. So like I'm trying to pay the interest 30 years ahead of time. And that would have kept the term of the loan at 30 years, which I, I thought was just thievery and malice. And, and in talking to Matthew about it, he, he thought the same thing because his parents had had a similar experience. And we started investigating the industry a bit. And um, what we discovered was it's actually not malice. What's happening is that a lot of these banks and lenders have these old technology systems, have this regulatory framework that's difficult to maneuver around, which causes extra cost. I'm not saying the regulatory framework is the right or wrong answer. I'm just, it's there, right? And and it, and between the regulatory framework, the technology, the people involved, all of it, it just creates a situation where this. It's also, by the way, I should say the economic framework and structure of the way homes are securitized out on the you know, the mortgage-backed security markets, et cetera. It just creates like the perfect storm for uh, a lot of problems. And the person, the, in, the individual uh, is the person who ends up feeling the pain. And here I was as a fairly well-educated, fairly well-experienced in, in the financial services industry. Having this happen to me, I thought to myself, wow, well, if this is somebody, this is, this is something that happens to me who knows this industry really well, can't imagine what's happening to the, you know, the, the average American. So that was, the, that was the birth of the, the business.
0: Thank you for being a loyal listener. One thing I'd ask is please consider joining our Giving Circle. We support startup tech nonprofits with our donor dollars to act as the angels to seed new organizations seeking to scale and do good. So please go to startupsforgood.com and click on Giving Circle. did you have an idea that you and Matthew would start a business and then you stumbled upon this or was this problem so enticing that you had to start a business? You know,
1: it was a mix. Both, both of us had fairly successful careers. Again, I say that modestly had fairly successful careers and we're thinking about, um, you know, what was next. And we weren't even sure that we were going to work together on anything. We had just been batting stuff, you know, batting the thought around, but when this came up, that this was something that we, we really, especially after we spent started spending more time investigating the industry, that was when we that was really really when we started to
0: dig in. And how did you know that it was a good opportunity? It's a good question.
1: You know, we founded the business in 2014, 2013, 14, and we made an interesting decision. I say it's an interesting decision, but I'm not sure it's a, still not sure if it was the right one, but I, I think we're in a pretty good spot. So I'll say it's the right one. We decided that what we were going to do was just talk to a lot of customers and run the business for a while by almost having like zero technology and just using the phone to talk to people all day long. So what we we actually did was set up some contracts with the banking service providers that could like we were going to use a manual process to get some of these deductions done and stuff like that. And in doing that, you know, allowed us to focus completely on the customer. And then we, we purchased some phones and a couple of phone lines and we, we started like sending out pieces of mail asking people to call us. And we started getting uh, phone calls and the phones would be ringing, you know, generally most of the day. And we did that for six months out of my apartment. So you're asking about the kitchen table. He, <laughs> I sat on the kitchen table very uncomfortably for six months. And he sat on the table around the corner from me, <laughs> very uncomfortably for six months. And we both, we both answered the phones all day long and talked to customers and, explain the product to them, that the concept we had and sign some folks up and process it all manually. I think we had about a hundred customers or so when we realized there was there was something here.
0: Well, that's a great story. I think in the lingo, they call that a concierge MVP, right?
1: I, I'm not sure, but that sounds, that sounds right.
0: Yeah, so uh, minimum viable product, you didn't build anything really, you just had phones and the ability to process payments and I guess a spreadsheet or something. And uh, concierge in the sense that you were doing it really by putting in a lot of people power to, to yeah. make it all work behind the scenes.
1: Yeah, the MVP piece, made, yeah, I'm, I'm familiar with that. The concierge I had not heard before. And the spreadsheet part is absolutely right. Actually, like a week ago or so, I stumbled on the first spreadsheet in the business, which was that list of customers of about 100 customers or so. And, I was, and we used to keep notes in, in one of the columns. And I was reading through some of them. It was pretty, it was pretty cool.
0: And how did you decide that Matthew was the right co-founder for you? you
1: know, Matthew and I met, um, actually, well, both of us were working abroad. So we, we, um, I worked at M- McKinsey for about F- McKinsey & Company, which is a st- strategy and management consulting firm. And he had worked for McKinsey & Company for some period of time. And we actually met while working abroad in the Middle East in Dubai. And we independently, we didn't know each other, decided to join a private equity fund. So I mentioned earlier in this conversation that I was familiar with the industry and that's, you know, I was in the financial services industry and was a private equity investor at one point in time in my career. And I, I left McKinsey to go join this PE fund. And the day I came into the office for my first day of work, I sat down and sitting next to me was Matthew. And it was right around the 2008 financial crisis was starting. And what we, uh, so we started investing together at work as just part of regular work and, and got to know each other and realize that we thought about investing in similar way. We, it was pretty cool. We did investments in Korea and India, like Egypt, Saudi, Switzerland. Like it was, it was, a, neat, it was a neat experience and learned a ton. And around the fin- time the financial crisis was, was hitting, we started to realize that the Fed and, and the federal government were putting in a bunch of money into the, into the markets. And we, came to the, we, we thought that there would be a high, hyperinflationary events, or events over the next couple of years. And so around that thesis, we started actually investing from Dubai in real estate in the United States, interestingly. And that's how we got exposure to working both at work as well as outside of work in investing in the real estate space. And that's how we got additional exposure to it. And then ever, and, and we're, we're fairly close ever since then, we, we've been close. Um, his father is a minister and actually officiated my wedding about five or six years ago and before that we were roommates for, for three or so years so it's been a it, it's been a good working relationship a good friendly relationship too
0: Well that's great and you guys worked together for a long time with Matthew as CEO and now your CEO Can you tell us more about that transition?
1: Yeah so in August September of September of last year Matthew got uh, he, he does suffer from mental illness and you know it's publicized out there so you can go on there and Google and, and pull up some of the articles that, that he's written. He does suffer from mental illness and and came to a point last year where he came to the realization that operating the business or or being in the business in an operating role was no longer sustainable for his life. That was a it was a hard moment for both of us to come to that realization, obviously harder for him. And I applaud his vulnerability. It, it was interesting. We were talking about it as he was making the decision. And for people that are thinking about like entrepreneurship, one of the best ways to to think about things is just like go out on Google if you have a question and see how other people have thought about it. it doesn't mean that you have to it doesn't mean that you have to do what other people are doing. It just helps you get the creative juices flowing. So he went online and he's like, "Well, should I be talking about this publicly?" And we went online and did some. He did most of it. He did searches about you know who are the founders, you know the the startup founders out there who have identified themselves as being mentally ill. And I think he found and who have subsequently left the business or even identified as being mentally ill. And I think he found um, one startup that had done that and it was like in Australia or something like that. And so I talked earlier about like this, the, the social mission aspects of EarnUp. We are a double bottom line company where we, we look to do, we look to make money. We're not shy about that, but we also look to do social good. And this felt like one of those unique opportunities where bringing this, this issue forward uh, and and shining a light on it we we thought would do the startup community good and so that that was a decision that he ultimately made and he's a, a you know it's it's really amazing to know a person who's willing to be that vulnerable
0: that must have been a very tough transition for both of you i'm curious if you think startup life is you know a large contributing factor for people in in sort of a high stress situation do you, do you have any thoughts about whether founders who uh, may already know they're susceptible to mental challenges, mental illness, that they stay away from starting a company, or you, you haven't reached that conclusion?
1: I don't, um, I haven't reached that conclusion. I th- I think, I think startup life is very, very stressful. And uh, this is, you know, over the course of the business, you know, and the people ask me well, what it's like to run a startup. And I say, like, it's a Emotional roller coaster on a daily basis. You experience the highest of highs and the lowest of lows almost every day, and so it, it makes it it makes it very very stressful. And some of the most stressful you know career year, career years of my life have certainly been experienced during that time. I, I think one of the reasons why he decided and I was supportive of of highlighting this issue is because it's an it's an illness, right? And it's almost like a chronic illness. And with all chronic illnesses, if you manage it the right way, then life and the things that you choose to do should be sustainable. Of course, everybody's unique and has their own unique circumstances. And if we start treating mental illness the way that we start treat the way that we treat other illnesses, and and people are willing to talk about these things in their own lives so they can get that po- proper treatment, uh, of course. Again, everybody has their own circumstances, but I. I I don't. I would not encourage people who suffer from. I'm not encouraged. I would encourage people who suffer from mental illness not to not to exclude startup life from from their careers just because they have a mental illness.
0: And for you transitioning to, into CEO, how has that been? It's
1: been interesting. So Matthew and I, in many in many ways, it's been hard too. Uh, in many ways, Matthew and I split the responsibilities of running the business. So he ran external-facing part of the business. He ran marketing. He ran sales. He ran uh, our people function, PR, and I ran a, a lot of the stuff internally. We split product duties, but you know, I, I officially ran product and engineering and operations and finance. And and so having to take over. Well, well, first of all, the organization. I mean, I think he's a very charismatic guy, and and he um, and a lot of people obviously liked him. And so, just to have the organization lose the leader, you know, overnight has a has a bit of, has a culture shock. And then uh, and then you know we we had to think about like how do we organize the executive team and who's doing what functions now that I'm no longer able to focus on just a core group of four functions. I have to I think the numbers eight. I now have to focus on eight functions and essentially doubled my workload overnight. So that, that requires work to organize to organize better to to be able to do all eight functions and that requires, you know, making certain personnel changes or making certain organizational changes to accommodate that. And then there's all the relationships that go with it. Like he he had certain relationships outside the business I I do too, but then we have to pass all of those over. And so it's a it's, you know, it's, it's a bit of chaos uh, in the beginning as this all happens. I think now the organization's in really good shape, and uh, but th- those kinds of things take time.
0: You mentioned that you see the company as a double bottom line company. How has that mission orientation helped you as a business?
1: i don't have a perfectly structured answer to this, so I kind of let me, let me give stream of consciousness a little bit. One is energy. Um, I think energy for me and energy for the team. a lot of the folks who join the team are are really are very proud to work at EarnUp. We do these engagement surveys and I think something like 80 or 90% of our team is marked themselves as being very proud at working at EarnUp. And that dr- is driven a lot by the mission. So that's one way that, and for all the things that we do and, and try to do. And that's similar for me, right? It's, it's neat. It's uh, moments of pride when we can say, and now I'm bragging, I'll admit it, like part of our bottom line is not only serving con- customers outside of the organization to help them get out of debt. The mission by the way, is to help the 200 million indebted Americans get out of the $20 trillion of debt that they owe and build a financial services system that works for everybody. right? So certainly we spend time trying to find ways to help consumers. But as part of our mission, we've also made some commitments to build a diverse workforce and a diverse team. And so I am willing to brag and say, we were looking at the numbers the other day and 43% of our engineers are women. right? That's something that I am very proud of and that's something that, you know, without the mission, I don't think we would have been able to do and and attract those people into the business. So it it brings a lot of energy and I I think it it brings a level of achievement that we wouldn't have otherwise been able to, to bring to the business. It gives us focus. One of the cool things about having values is when you're confronted with really hard decisions and it's unclear which way the decision should go, this is where like values can really come into the picture and help you decide on which decision to make based on those values. And so it gives us, it is a a North star for us, a guiding light for us to set what our values are and help, you know, be the tiebreaker in some of those hard decisions. And then I'd say it's, you know, for those thinking about going down this path, it's helped us build relationships and has been positive for revenue growth in, in the sense that a lot of businesses want to work with us because we, we bring that mission-driven aspect to their business uh, on their side. And, and that helps us grow revenue as well. So there's a commercial component to this. This goes back to my statement earlier, where like you can do social good and make money at the same time we have that belief and, and are, are working towards that. So it's been helpful for growth too. Those are the ones I can think off the top of my head.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's a lot. Motivation, help making decisions. Uh, diversity in recruiting and sales I mean that's that's a lot of benefits i'm I'm curious if you think there's been more to building a diverse engineering team than just mission. There's probably other things you've done, and I wonder if others could learn from you
1: yeah I don't um, so I don't know that I have a, a magic bullet here. This is something that the startup ecosystem struggles with a lot. We've had the benefit. I was mentioning this double bottom line before. And so we have a set of investors who have invested in us with an expectation that we deliver a return on their investment. They're there. They measure us on revenue growth. They measure us on all of the things that you would expect a startup gets measured on. We also have a set of investors who have an expectation that we deliver on social impact. Now, these are some of the nonprofits that, that I mentioned, like Flourish Capital is one of them, Acumen is one of them, uh, Kapor Capital is one of them. There's a list of them, and and they're all terrific supporters of the business, and and they all offer up a lot of resources for us to drive our, you know, you know, to, to deliver on our on our social mission. And so we've gone to a number of these sessions that they hold, going as far back as 2015, because it's such a, it's a you know, it's it's hard work, and and it requires a lot of thought and attention and they've been terrific supporters in providing resources for us to get better at that and I, and in using some of those using and and the industry's evolved right like the, the guidelines or guidelines the education they give us the, the suggested path for like how to do this better it changes over time so we try to stay up to date and they're terrific resources and continually updating the way that we do these things and as well as learning from our peers best practices from our peers so it's been like it's not like one thing that we've done and I'm not even sure we do it well, by the way. I just, just, you know, I think we're doing pretty, I think we're doing pretty well on, it on the engineering side, but I'm sure in the other areas we could do better. Um, and there's a list of things that, you know, we can spend more time talking about in the future about the things that you need to do to build diversity in the workforce. Uh, but there is no magic one, one thing. And there's, but the good news is there's a lot of, there's a lot of resources and a lot of focus on this area. And I actually think the focus over the past several years as well as various movements have really been able to shine, shine a light on this and uh, help make this easier.
0: You mentioned your investors, and you have such a range from nonprofit, social impact oriented for profit investors, and purely financial investors. And you just announced a series B, I think, recently. How, how do you manage all of those different perspectives on your cap table?
1: And we have one particular investor who's amazing. His name is Miles Lasseter. <laughs> terrifically helpful in, in growing the business. I find our investors to be terrific. It's interesting. I was, I've been doing some interviews recently for um, an executive position in the business and, and they've been executives at other startups as well. And they tell me some of the horror stories from, that they have to deal with on their investor, with their investor base and their, their board. And like knock on wood, uh, our investors have been absolutely terrific, uh, all the way from you know, the, the folks. So, Blumberg led our Series C, Blumberg Capital led our Series Seed. Uh, our Series A was led by Signal Fire, Chris Farmer, and Ilya uh, Kiernos, um, And then, Matt Harris and Merritt Hummer from Bain led our Series B. And they've been, and then there's, and I'm remiss to mention uh, Emily and Shaw and her team over at Flourish, who, who are part of the board now as well. They're just a flourish for those folks who don't know, also a a social impact driven driven fund. They've been awesome. And, you know, I used to, I was a board member when I was in my private equity days and, and the board can be a contentious place. And I think that group of folks, and I think there's a movement in the VC space, which is be supportive of the founders that, you know, be supportive of the founders any way that you can be. And that's the approach that they've taken. Sure, they ask for stuff, but We ask them for a lot more. And and that's actually, you ask, you know, how do we go about managing that? I think that's actually the thing we've said to all of our investors when they've either asked to invest or we've asked them to invest is if they offer help, we are going to take them up on it. And I think that's been true of most of our investors. And I think many of them come in with an expectation and a hope and desire to be able to help. And um, I think, so much of that is, you know, is, a, is a culture fit between the founders and the investors, and I think all of them have come through for us at one point in time or another. So you asked the question, how do we manage it? I think it's about having individual relationships. I still do phone calls or conversations with some of our earliest investors on a, you know, a monthly or you know, every, every two months basis, even just to update them on the business. And, and so I think it's all about like, the communication path the, and the way that you work together that's, that, that really sets the tone.
0: That sounds great, and, and thanks for the kind words. I appreciate it. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I think one of the other things that you're balancing in your business, and I've had to deal with this in, in one of mine, is the b 2 b to c nature of it that you talked about. So you have enterprise customers and then you have individual homeowners or borrowers. How do you think about balancing resources internally for those two different constituencies? You know, there's two
1: answers to this, and there's one of them I subscribe to. I once had another founder tell me, don't do B2B2C to to because you're never really sure who your customer is. It's either the B or the C. And, and I don't subscribe to that. What I do subscribe to is you're serving the same customer. If you're truly creating a win-win, what I like to call a win-win-win, which is we win, the consumer wins, the enterprise wins, then you're doing the same thing for all of them. Which is making a, a creating a better product, creating a better magical, as we call it, a magical experience for our customers. And that magical experience goes to both the consumer and the and the enterprise. I know that's a bit of a kitschy answer, but it's so long as you're focused on delivering a you know a terrific user experience. One of our values is being customer happiness obsessed. And as so long as you're customer happiness obsessed, the way that you approach building product, then. Balancing resources is, is, well, balancing resources is never easy, but it, it can be straightforward.
0: Do you have any other advice for aspiring entrepreneurs? Yeah, it's it's a question I,
1: I think about. Uh, I get asked occasionally or too frequently, depending on, uh, and it's something I've, I've been given a lot of thought to over the years. I think, and my answer has changed over time, I think the, the most important thing that people don't appreciate as the the relationship that you have with your co-founder. It's interesting we had an advisor several years ago who also said the same thing and I was a little bit I was a little bit surprised by the comment he said, and he said I judge whether to invest in a business or not solely based on the relationship that the co-founders have. And I think that's a I, I think for me that I didn't understand it at the time but I think this is a very prescient. Has become a very prescient statement for me, and and is the advice that I would give to other entrepreneurs, which is, find a co-founder, and build the relationship, uh, and ensure that it's a it's in a good place. So many startups fail because of that relationship, and if you have an okay relationship, then your chances of success, are nowhere near as great as if you have a terrific relationship, because that isn't in. An instance in which one plus one will equal three. And so that's the that's the probably the most important piece of advice I would give, I would give other other people who are aspiring entrepreneurs. Now you may ask, well, wait a second, what, what why a co-founder? And and I think like so I, I think there are probably a lot of people out there who are who run businesses by themselves. And maybe I would say like the way I'd answer is why combinator, which is a prolific accelerator. I th- I believe still has I'm not sure if they still do has a re- has a requirement that every startup that they take into the program has at least two founders. So I'd, I I kind of just leave it. I I kind of that should hopefully be verification enough for folks that are co-founders is a good idea if you're starting a startup.
0: Yeah, there's so many advantages to it in complementary skill sets in emotional regulation and you get Multiple shots on goal to try to solve problems. So it, there are there are tons of benefits. You do give up some control and some equity, but I think in the end, it increases your odds of success. So your expected economic outcome is higher. Plus, it's more fun along the way.
1: I think you're spot on, and and you mentioned the the control and equity piece just now, and actually. Earlier today, I, I was on, the, on a call with a, a founder who was just starting up a business, and he asked the very same question, and I said, co-founder relationship. And then the next thing I said is, don't be stingy with the equity. If I could do some things differently in the beginning stages of the business, I would have brought in, they didn't, wouldn't have to necessarily being co-founders, but I would have brought in a high caliber executive team much earlier and would have, because you're a startup, you don't have any money. I would have compensated them with a lot more equity um, to bring in those higher caliber folks. And it, it helps build the business faster and the chemistry as you grow to a larger business, the chemistry of the executive team becomes so, so critical in determining your success and the more at-bats or the longer time that you have in doing that uh, is, a, is a big benefit.
0: Well, as we wrap up, I think that's a great spot. Uh, one final question uh, of substance is uh, do you have any book podcast article that you'd recommend to aspiring founders
1: yeah i mean the you know this the startup Bible is high output management, so that's a kind of like a an easy answer, which is you know Andy Grove of intel's thoughts i i don't I feel like it was written in the eighties or nineties.
0: Early 80s, in fact. You know, I never finished it. It's a good reminder. I need to go back and do that. <laughs> so
1: that indicates how you feel about it.
0: <laughs> it didn't it didn't fully hook me, but I, I yeah. do I do need to read it.
1: It's not the it's not the most captivating read, but it, it it is a it is a great one. And and I like it because he talks about how to manage an, an information-based uh, economy, which is what we're still in in my mind. The other one that I really like is is really only like a 30 page read. So maybe well, I'm actually looking at it it's here on my desk is like, yeah, like a 50 page read, but it's like a small book with like large font. Um, and it's a book that's called Feedback That Works by the Center for Creative Leadership. And that's essentially the folks who are over at the Harvard Negotiation Project wrote this. I think it was originally written. Yeah. First edition published in 2000. I think if you, as you think about building a business, if you can get people to be effective at delivering feedback in a non-judgmental high trust manner that gets everybody to be much better performers in the organization and that, that is one that um, I wish I knew about earlier and we could have instilled in the culture earlier in the business because if you don't do it early then it gets harder the change management for this particular part of the culture is, is hard
0: that sounds know, great miles, I'm gonna have to check it out
1: yeah I know miles you have maybe you've talked on on previous podcasts, you have a couple of strong, you you have some strong recommendations as well, right?
0: Yeah, I don't know uh, that people have asked me, but uh, one that I really like you and I have talked about is 15 Commitments of Conscious Leadership. I actually think the great CEO within is a wonderful book for startup CEOs that covers the very minutiae details of, you know, how to run meetings, how to set up your file server, all the way up to how to manage yourself, how to think about your job, and how to keep your emotional regulation, uh, you know, going. It's that's a wonderful book. If if I had to, if I had to recommend one book, it'd be Lean Startup or Great CEO Within. I think.
1: That's great. What, um, you know, so many of these books. Now my turn to ask questions. So many of these books, Miles, are like have such great advice, and there's a lot of them out there. And you get a lot of recommendations, right? How would you suggest you're a successful entrepreneur? How would you suggest people manage or make the most of so many different good leadership slash management books?
0: I I think it is helpful to get different perspectives. One of the reasons I do like The Great CEO Within is it summarizes so many other systems and puts it into bite-sized pieces in, call it, 15 different categories. And then it cites saying, you know, this is best practice as learned from this other two books. You can go dive deep if you want, or you know, this is kind of the, the best of the best. And I found it to be extremely well put together
1: great. I made a note of it.
0: Well, thanks for turning the mic around there and asking some questions. That was fun. Uh, where can people follow you online?
1: I'm on Twitter, uh, at N probably the place I go most, most frequently nowadays. But, uh, if you, if you really are interested about following me online, then come visit our website at myearnup.com. for that's the site for customers to sign up, uh, consumer customers that is. And then um, if you're a somebody operating in the mortgage uh, space, mortgage origination, mortgage servicing, or I would say in the payment space as well, earnup.com is our enterprise-focused website. And I encourage you to become a customer as um, we already have $10 billion in loans on the platform, so looking for making it 20 soon.
0: Wonderful. Thanks so much for coming on. Thanks, Miles, for having me on. I really appreciate it. If you liked what you heard today on the podcast, be sure to subscribe using your favorite podcast player. And please give us a rating and review. The reviews help others find us. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram, and you can follow me on LinkedIn. Be sure to visit our website, startupsforgood.com. That's startups for good, all run together, no spaces, dot com. If you were inspired today and want to join our online community or our giving circle, please do so on our website.